Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tamkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 23rd of April. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Well, as we record this, it's one day on from the annual occasion of Earth Day, and a lot of international leaders um, made comments on environmental protection and climate change uh, timed uh, alongside that. But I think most significant or most striking of them all was uh Joe Biden's uh, new plan on climate change, which he unveiled at the start of an international summit that he was hosting at the White House yesterday. So why don't you start us off, Emily, and tell us a bit about what he said and what we should make of it. Biden announced that the US will aim to cut our emissions by 50 to 52 percent by 2030. I think that we should make two things of this. The first is that according to climate change experts with whom I spoke after the announcement, um, this is both very ambitious and not ambitious enough. And and what they mean by that is that in all likelihood, the US will have a very difficult time achieving this goal um, in that it will involve also cutting our transportation emissions, uh, which the US has traditionally been less good at than cutting emissions from the power sector. Um, But the other thing is that, you know, in terms of international justice, this is not nearly ambitious enough because if the aim of the whole world is to cut emissions by 2030, then the US, which is historically the largest emitter and now second only to China, um, you know, if, if we're only doing the same as as the average, that's, that's really not fair. Um, and so despite all of the work that it would take to achieve this goal, some climate experts think that we need to push farther to get the US to do more financially and also to, to do more organizationally, right, to really like put our resources into this. Um, The other thing that we should take from this is that this was clearly meant to spur other leaders into action. And and Biden actually said, you know, those countries who take more action now will be the ones to reap the the clean boom, the clean energy boom that's coming. Um, Some countries were inspired by that or or just inspired by our impending climate doom. So Japan actually increased its target. Um, But other countries, namely China, did not announce a target. Um, and so, you know, the effectiveness of the summit, I think, is really very much still to be seen. And I noticed that also um, sort of concerning news out of yesterday's summit was that uh, Xi Jinping, China's president, said that China would only start phasing out its use of coal power in 2026. Um, so not for five years. And those, of course, are five years in which um, there's really 
increasingly little time for the world to act to stop runaway climate change. So I think there too, more ambition is needed. Um, what was your moment of the week, Emily? I did want to mention on this podcast, since we've we've spoken about the Black Lives Matter movement, and just a couple of weeks ago, we spoke about you know the the call to defund the police. But because of all that, my moment of the week is that on earlier this week, the verdict in the the case of George Floyd's killer, Jer- Derek Chauvin, was announced. Uh, he was found guilty on all counts: murder in the second degree, murder in the third degree, manslaughter in the second degree. There were some politicians who came out and said, "Oh, this was justice," or "Oh, you know, he sacrificed himself for justice." Um, first of all, George Floyd did not sacrifice himself; he was murdered. Second of all, yes, you know, the the officer was found guilty, but it took you know, it, it took a, a not even a young woman, a, a teenager, filming for nine and a half minutes uh, this this gruesome act for for people to get that verdict. Like I, I had to ask myself, would, could this happen again? And of course it could, because the system has not changed. And in fact, as the verdict was being announced, a 16-year-old girl in Columbus, Ohio was was shot and killed by police officers, like literally within minutes of the announcement of the verdict. And so while this was, you know, Cori Bush, who's a, a new representative in Congress, said that this was accountability, but it was not justice. And I, I wanted to note that on the podcast this week. Yeah, as I as I saw that news and as I read the piece you wrote for us about it, I, I was reminded um, at several points about some of the elements of our conversation with Alex Vitale um, on on pod a couple of weeks ago. So um, I think it, it brought home how relevant some of that is. Um, the moment of the week I think is uh, very historically significant is that on Tuesday, um, it was announced that Chad's president, um, uh, Idris Debbie, had been killed um when he was on a visit to troops uh, deployed against rebels in the country. Uh, and the day after, so on Wednesday, his son, uh, Mahmoud Debi, took over um, in, in a move that uh, the opposition in the country has said amounts to an institutional coup. And of course, that's unleashed a lot of worries about instability in the country. Uh, I mean, it's it's in a very unstable part of the world um, between Libya, the Central African Republic, Sudan and Nigeria. And so already uh, a sort of a fraught um, geopolitical location. Um, and Chad's been very important to the uh, the battle against um, Islamist militancy in the Sahel region. Um, and I think it's going to, particularly if, if the country slides into instability or, um, or, or, or even greater disorder, it's going to pose some difficult questions, particularly for the French government, which has been working closely with the Debbie regime um, to target um, uh, militancy in, in the region. So I think that's definitely something worth paying attention to. And with that, it is now my great pleasure, my esteemed honor to introduce our not guest, but something better, our... International editor Jeremy Cliff, who will be talking about Germany this week with me. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast this week. It's a pleasure. <laughs> um, okay, so to start out, um, you had the Green Party in Germany and the Christian Democrats both announce their candidate for chancellor this week. You wrote pieces on both, and in fact, I think had the first English language profile on the woman who this week became the Green candidate. Um, could you just tell our listeners a bit about? both of these candidates and what it says about where their respective parties are at. Right. So this is this was a really significant week in German politics because the the next German election on September the 26th is um, going to be very competitive. Obviously, it's the first since Merkel or the first without Merkel running as the Christian Democrat chancellor candidate. She said she's stepping down at, at that election. Um, 
And in the polls, the Christian Democrats have, have slipped quite far down and the Greens have, have, have really um, gained support in the last few years. They, they got about 9% at the last election. They're now around 21%. The Christian Democrats are now 28, 29%. So it's sort of the gap starting to close. So it's a really competitive race. And both of those two leading parties announced this week which of their um, leading figures would actually be their candidates for chancellor. So on Monday, the Greens, um, we knew it was going to be one of the two co-leaders of the Green Party. Um, and they announced that it would be their woman co-leader, Annalena Baerbock, who would lead them into the election. Um, and so there's a lot of interest around that because... Um, Firstly, she would be the youngest ever German chancellor. She's only 40. Um, and also she would be the first ever green chancellor of Germany. And, and that's now, I don't think I'd say it's likely, but it's certainly a possibility at this election in a way that it wasn't before. And then on Tuesday, we saw the um, conclusion of what had been nine days of fairly unseemly wrangling uh, between the two parts of the kind of Christian Democrat alliance. So there's the Christian Democratic Union, which is Merkel's party, and then its sister party, the Christian Social Union, which runs only in the state of Bavaria. But they, 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 they sit together in the Bundestag and they put up one candidate to be chancellor. And there had been a kind of long power battle between Armin Laschet, who was elected leader of the CDU in January, as listeners who heard our episode with Constanze Stretzenmüller around that time will remember, um, and Markus Söder, who's the leader of the CSU. And these were two men, in some ways quite similar, quite sort of very avuncular, very boisterous, quite politically pragmatic, I suppose you could say, uh, but both very ambitious. And um, it was a real um, sort of um, bare fist fight between the two of them. But um, in the end, Laschet managed to prevail and um, Zerda withdrew on Tuesday to say that Laschet should have a, a free run at the candidacy. Um, but there are big questions about Laschet because he's he's not that popular. Well, I want to get on to that. But first, I um, just one more thing on the announcements, which is that you had a line in your piece on Laschet that, that said, you know, the kind of unseemly wrangling um, it was in stark juxtaposition to the orderly announcement of the Greens. Mm. What do you think that will, you know, d- does that tell us anything about how the next few months might go and what we can expect to see from these two parties or or two, you know, groups uh, in the German elections? Yeah, although with the, although they came out with their candidates uh, within 24 hours of each other, the, the, the route that they both took to get there was very, very different. So with the Greens, um, it was made clear from the start that those two co-leaders, Annalena Baerbock and Robert Habeck, who's her co-leader, would decide privately between the two of them which should do it. That there shouldn't be an open contest. They wanted to go into the election united. It was always clear that both of them will, will sort of front the election campaign together. So very much as a team. And remarkably, German politics in recent months has been unbelievably leaky. Every single one of these big summits that Angela Merkel holds every few weeks to discuss lockdown policies with the heads of the federal states leaks like a sieve. You know, it's all over Twitter as it happens. But the Greens somehow managed to keep the choice of chancellor candidate completely, completely secret until the morning of their announcement. And it was announced in a very slick and professional event. Harbeck came out and introduced Annalena Baerbock, spoke very supportively of her. Um, you know, she then did a very sort of uh, successful media round uh, on the, the, the evening political shows and, uh, over the subsequent days. And then you had the, the CDU and the CSU, where you had this kind of, it was like a sort of family feud that played out and all of it leaked. So we'd have nine <laughs> Sorry, days. it's not funny. I shouldn't be laughing at their, at their leaks, <laughs> is, but go it on. It is very amusing because, because, because basically these two characters, they're these kind of both quite sort of swaggering, 
slightly paunchy, aging Christian Democrats, but they're just both, I mean, you get the sense that they, they, they both acted like prima donnas over, over this period. And, and the whole, you know, all of these discussions and these battles and everyone despairing about how chaotic it was leaked, leaked all over the place. And it was just, as I said, very unseemly. Um, uh, Lashett, the ultimate, as it were, the winner of that battle, has had all of his many weaknesses paraded through social media by his own colleagues. And so, you know, the difference between the two parties, and it could, could, can't really be overstated. And I think the striking thing is this is completely the, the reverse of the, the stereotype. You know, the Christian Democrats, Merkel's party are supposed to be the plodding, sensible, professional party. They've governed the Federal Republic for most of its existence. And then on the other hand, you have the Greens, who were traditionally known for being constantly in battles between their left and right wings, the so-called the fundies or the, the idealists and the realos, as they're known, or the, the centrist camp. Um, and, and it was just a total reversal of those stereotypes. So you've been dropping hints throughout this conversation at, at you know, Lashett's unpopularity and all of his flaws and how they've been, they've just been made public by his, his colleagues. Um, which we would not do to our colleagues here at the New Statesman. Um, but but could you could you say a bit about what those flaws are? Hmm. And I think this this does matter because he is he is notwithstanding the CDU CSU's difficulties and the Greens' recent successes, he is still probably the front runner to be Merkel's successor as German Chancellor. And he's he's basically a very conventional Christian Democrat. He's fairly economically moderate. You know, he has good relations with big industry. He's um, the minister president, I should add, of the state of North Rhine-Westphalia, which is the, the most populous state in Germany. It's the state around sort of Dusseldorf and Cologne and the Ruhr Valley, a lot of heavy industry there. And he's close to heavy industry. He's also got good links to the trade unions. His father was a coal miner um, in a very kind of classic German Christian democratic way. He's very um, romantically pro-European, you know, he's he speaks French. Um, he grew up very close to the Belgian border. Um, he was a member of the European Parliament, so kind of a believer in the EU. Um, and he's also a kind of great believer in sort of social cohesion um, and um, de- narrowing the divides within society. So, for example, he supported Merkel's um, liberal refugee policies in the refugee crisis of 2015. And he's known for having good relations with migrant communities in Germany. He's even been dubbed a Turkish Armin because he, he gets on very well with the Turkish community here, um, which is not something you can take for granted with Christian Democrat politicians in Germany. Um, set against that, he's got a very sort of, some say he's got quite a naively optimistic 1990s style view of foreign policy. He's very, very dovish on Russia and China and even has had some comments on Twitter in which he suggested he was sympathetic with, um, or at least critical of the rebels um, fighting against the Assad regime in, in, in Syria. That's something that alarms some um, uh, foreign observers and indeed some in Germany. But but all in all, he does come across as a bit of a provincial politician. You know, he's he's he could very easily pass for a mayor of a small town, um, you know, good at turning up at the whatever it is, the kind of the Volksfest, the, you know, the, 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 the summer festival or in the beer hall or at carnival or whatever and opening schools and hospitals and things. But whether he's really chancellor material is something that some of his own colleagues doubt. And one of the striking things about his battle with Zerda um, for the chancellor candidacy was that, you know, Zerda was backed by the CSU, his own Bavarian party, as you'd expect, but he was also backed by significant parts of Laschet's CDU, you know, the a lot of the parts of the party from the east of, of Germany, which is a bit more conservative, some of also the youth wing of the party also backed Zerda, because I think a lot of them just doubt if he's really up to it. And, and the opinion polls suggest that he's got a long way to catch up. He's not, he's not popular either in his own state, surprisingly, or indeed um, nationally, um, you know, at, at, at a nationwide 
it's interesting because you wrote in the Baerbach profile, um, which listeners you should really you should really read. It's it's excellent. Um, th- that Merkel may see Baerbach as her as a successor. Uh, listening to you, it does not seem that that was like obviously how she uh, how she viewed Laschet. Yeah, I mean, I, I took a bit of a liberty with that idea. I suppose I was I was speculating as to whether Merkel at least sees Baerbock as any less of an of, a, of an heir than the successor generation in her own CDU. Um, I mean, her politics are not those of of, of Baerbock's. But a point that I, I've, I was making in conversation with someone recently was that you know you you can be someone's political heir without entirely sharing their politics. So in the UK, it's often said that um, Tony Blair was Margaret Thatcher's political heir. He didn't share her politics, but you, there was a sort of stream of continuity from one to the other. And I, I suppose maybe we'll, we'll have to see, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was something similar in terms of the, the Merkel-Baerbock relationship. They certainly get on well personally. I mean, Merkel's known to rate Baerbock. She's known to take her aside in the Bundestag for private chats uh, now and again. So, um, and, and, and she's she's known to be somewhat critical of, of Laschet. She actually openly criticised him over his handling of COVID-19 in a TV interview recently. I mean, I think she she's probably relatively comfortable with him as a candidate because the the big question in the CDU and the CSU, um, and this has been going on for years, is what happens, what comes after Merkel, what and who comes after Merkel? Because she's been so dominant, you know, she's been Chancellor for almost sixteen years now, um, and the big question was would the party kind of pivot to the right because she's governed broadly from the centre, and I don't think Lasher would pivot to the right. He represents continuity in that sense, but he's just, I mean, as things stand, he's just not that impressive. Okay, so we have this not that impressive man who is nevertheless probably going to be uh, the next chancellor. What are the coalitions he would likely he would likely form? I guess I guess what I'm I'm getting at is like what are the potential coalitions? And since you mentioned, um, you know, that he's pro Europe, but maybe a little soft, as we might say on Russia, uh, what are the foreign policies that we could expect from these different permutations of coalitions? I think what you think is going to happen at the election depends partly on how unimpressive one thinks Armin Laschet is. I mean, having said what I just did, I also don't think you can completely write him off because, I mean, he he is, you know, he is a he was a decent election campaigner in his own state. He became minister president um, in 2017 when he came very much from behind in the polls to take the state from the center left center left social democrats. So he is capable of, of winning elections. So I don't think I'd totally write him off. But he's as I say, he's got a long way to, to kind of claw back. Now, I think if he can more or less hold the line in the election campaign, which will sort of, I think, start, it will really take off in the, you know, over the high summer, so July or so. Um, and then, as I said, polling days on September the 26th. If, if, if he can hold the line and keep the CDU, CSU to, say, 30% or above, which would be slightly below, it's already not great result in the 2017 election. I think in that case, you're most likely to see a CDU-CSU-led government with the Greens. Um, And I think things have been pointing that way for a while. Um, The Greens have been moving towards the political centre. Under Merkel, in some ways, the political centre has been moving towards the Greens. Um, And I think think you'd see there um, two relatively equal coalition parties. I mean, the CDU-CSU would be the larger one in this scenario. Laschet would be the chancellor. But the Greens wouldn't be that much smaller than them in the Bundestag. And I think, certainly based on current polling, and I think um, that would give them a lot of influence. You know, they'd want to write the the key parts of their, you know, decarbonisation and green investment agenda into the coalition treaty. 
Um, they'd also want some big ministries. I think they'd definitely go for the finance ministry, which is the, the most powerful ministry in Berlin, and also obviously crucial to decarbonization, because if you want to um, you know, change the energy basis of your economy, you need to spend money on that. Um, I think they might also go for the foreign ministry, for example, um, and, and Baerbock would most probably become the vice chancellor. So you, you'd have, I think the most likely outcome is a Laschet-led government with a significant green presence. But then there's a possibility in which Laschet really does do as badly as um, some in his own party and beyond think, and in which Baerbock, um, as many also think, really performs well in the election campaign. And she does have, her, you know, she does have strength. She's on, on you know, on the one hand, she is relatively young. She doesn't have any executive experience, which would be the first for any German chancellor. So she she also has her weaknesses, but she you know she radiates a sense of sort of freshness and energy. And I think you know after the long Merkel years, you know almost sixteen years now of Christian Democratic government, the pandemic, just a sort of sense that the country needs some change that might you know work in her favour. And I think if that turns out to be the case, and say the CDU falls some way below. 30% and the Greens do as well as they're doing in the current polls or a bit better, sort of 22, 23, 24%, then you might have numbers in the Bundestag where the Greens could form a government without the CDU, CSU, which they would lead. Um, I think most likely would be one with the Social Democrats and the Free Democrats. The Free Democrats are notionally a liberal party, although they've actually moved to the right on some subjects. So I always refer to them as sort of conservative liberal, but a sort of a Green-led government with the Social Democrats and the Free Democrats, led by Baerbock, which would be a huge deal. You know, youngest ever chancellor, first ever Green chancellor. And I think it would be a way for the Greens to really work all of their kind of their focus on um, decarbonizing Germany, um, changing the basis of its um, economy um, all the way through through government. So I think it would be it would be a very big deal if they did um, become if that that did end up coming to pass. And what do each of these coalitions foreign policies look like? So let's let's take the first one first. Let's say it's a Lasha government uh, and the Greens are in coalition with them. What is their foreign policy? So the first thing you need to know about foreign policy in Germany is that the power center has shifted from the foreign ministry to the chancellery. The chancellery is now the engine room of um, big substantive foreign policy ideas. And that's important because I think in a Laschet-led government with the Greens, you would have some big differences on, on, on foreign policy. Um, Laschet, as I said, um, is quite a dove on Russia and China um, and, and I think would look very much to France uh, on foreign policy terms. So I think he'd be in favour of um, sort of European defence integration, European defence spending, um, but perhaps not keen to take a tough line on, on Moscow and Beijing. The Greens, I think, are also quite pro-European, but would want to take a tough line on those governments and on international autocracy because, you know, the Greens have as their their roots a kind of an automatic sympathy with dissidents, pro-democracy campaigners, human rights. Um, so I think they'd be at odds with Laschet on that. And then you also have the fact that the Greens, um, while they are quite Atlanticist and very pro-European, they also have a complicated relationship with the use of military force. You know, they grew out of the peace movement. Anna Lena Baerbock herself, as a child, was taken on marches against raging, Reagan's deployment of Pershing missiles in then West Germany during the Cold War. Um, and so you, you, you have kind of two potential fronts of conflict, one on a kind of the values-led for, foreign policy, um, with relation to um, non-democratic or quasi-democratic regimes abroad, and secondly, with the relationship to the to the to the use of military force. So, I think that could potentially be quite a fraught foreign policy relationship. 
And now um, let's move on to the other potential coalition. Uh, it's it's the Greens are are in charge, and we also have the Social Democrats and the Free Democrats. Um, what would their foreign policy look like? So I think with the Greens in the Chancellery, the Greens would be the one setting the agenda. That would be a significant difference. You know, Baerbock would be the one going to European Council meetings, representing Germany at the G7, at the G20, and so forth. Um, so I think. I think it would be, you know, as you would expect, it would be more, it would be more green influenced. Um, but I think with that, some of those tensions, including within the greens, become more complicated because, you know, if if for example Germany moves to deploy troops, I don't know, perhaps perhaps say, I mean, I mentioned Chad earlier in this episode, perhaps alongside France into the Sahel, there are already some German troops involved, but uh, to a greater degree, um, and you have a green chancellor saying, you know. I've talked with Emmanuel Macron about this. It's what we need to do. We need to support the French. This is an important security point. And that's somewhere where I think that the, the leadership of today's Greens actually are quite comfortable with, you know, they're, they're not, you know, a, an important point was um, 1999 when under the um, gr- then Green Foreign Minister, Joschka Fischer, Germany um, sent its first combat troops into conflict since 1945 to, to uh, as part of a NATO mission in Kosovo. Um, so, you know, I can imagine, for example, a Chancellor Baerbock being willing to do so in certain circumstances in the future, but then find that her own, some of her own grassroots were unhappy with that. You know, there is still a very strong pacifist element in the Green Party. And so I think in both cases, you've got potential for tension or conflict about where the Greens principles actually point them on uh, on foreign policy. And, and I think the difference would be whether they're um, kind of in conflict with a Laschet-led chancellery in, in a kind of black-green coalition, as it's called, uh, or whether it would be the Greens themselves wielding the ultimate power, but in tension with their own grassroots in, in the case of a Green-led government. But, but I'd be interested to hear how this is all seen from Washington, because, I mean, obviously relations between Germany and the, and the US, or the White House more precisely, in the last years have been fraught. Merkel and Trump famously did not hit it off. Um, but um, with Biden coming to power, there was a sense that, ah, you know, now Germany and, and the US can really work closely together again. But I mean, I wonder how how American policymakers view the, the change of power coming up in Germany. You know, that they've, they've come, they've become very used to dealing with Merkel. Um, she's obviously a very kind of recognized figure in, in US politics. What, how, how do they see um, the choice Germany's facing at this election? I think that there is some uh, skepticism and concern in, you know, the political class in Washington about about Laschet. That isn't to say that the Biden administration wouldn't work with him. Of course, it would. You know, the U.S.-Germany relationship is is so important um, that I think anyone, and I, I think we saw this with Trump, honestly, that even even a personality that 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 is that destructive um, couldn't break it at least over four years. But you know, I think if you have somebody who's like. Europe in general and Germany in particular are already more, if not sympathetic to Russia and China, than than willing to overlook some of the things that the U.S. does not want them to overlook to to maintain economic ties um, with Russia and China than you know than we'd like. Um, and if you add to that somebody who you know who's who's as you said um, tweeted about Syrian rebels and who I think we can expect would take a much softer line on on Putin. Um, you know, there could be, there could be some tension there. Um, 
One thing I, you know, I was thinking of while you were speaking is that I, I often think that one of the great differences between the US and Europe is that policymakers here, I think, see economics and national security as very, as very much uh, entwined. And sometimes they will be hypocrites on that, but they understand in, in their understanding, you know, economic decisions are also national security decisions. And I think Europeans separate the two out. So like Nord Stream 2, I think, is the best example of this, right? Where um, where you have Americans and I should note Eastern Europeans saying, of course, this is a national security problem. Like how it's it's, it's a pipeline. How could you possibly separate that from the the national security threat that Russia poses. Just for, for listeners that aren't, aren't immediately familiar with with Nord Stream two, it's it's a second pipeline that goes directly from Russia to the North German coast and effectively uh, bypasses Poland and Ukraine, and and thus I think it's fair to say undermines those countries. Right, and uh, you know the German lines on this have been everything from oh well it's already set to. Um, to no, 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 this is just economic. It's, it has nothing to do with our policy towards Russia to even, I believe it was the the German president who said, well, we have to do this for Russia because of World War II, which was a wild thing to say. Um, and I think, you know, I, I don't think that the US, like, you know, there are reports that the US is considering, has has considered sanctions at various points over this. Um, I, I, I don't think that the US-Germany relationship is going to fall apart over Nord Stream 2. But what I do think is that you have all of these little differences adding up because of this one big difference, which is that we under we fundamentally understand the tie between economics and national security differently. Yeah, yeah. And I think Nord Stream 2 is a good example of the sort of subject where, for example, a Laschet chancellery and a Baerbock foreign ministry would potentially be at odds because I think the, the Greens have said, in fact, it's in their draft manifesto that they want to stop Nord Stream 2, although it's worth adding that it's almost completed already. But um, in any case, um, whereas... Well, I, the thing that's so funny about this is that the US has been saying for years to stop Nord Stream 2 and with and, and like had and gotten different responses from Germany along the way. And now the response is, well, it's almost finished. It's like, okay, yeah. well, it wasn't five years or however many years ago when we started this discussion. Exactly. The fact, and that's actually, I mean, it's worth pointing out that that not all of this would be, in fact, quite a lot of it wouldn't be a departure from the Merkel years, because that's exactly been Merkel's approach is that she doesn't have that many illusions about Putin. She speaks Russian, she, she talks to him, she thinks he's a thug, but has sort of gone along with Nord Stream 2, I think, because German industry wants it. And, um, you know, she's she's more pragmatic than strategic, I think, on, on or more tactical than strategic on that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, that's that's now her line as well. It's almost been built anyway. But you know, she's been chancellor for the entire period of its right, right. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. Uh, so so I think I think you're dealing with kind of kind of a quite of a, a nuanced um, picture in terms of both what the CDU CSU would be like under Laschet uh, as chancellor, what the Greens, what role the Greens would play, and where actually those would mark departures from Merkel as opposed to forms of continuity. So I think it's something to keep watching. But I'd I'd be interested also to see how the debate develops in the US as the election gets closer. Whether you know do people end up saying, well, the Greens are the ones who you know who share our our commitment to liberal democracy around the world, so we want them in the chancery, or if it's more like, well. You know, at least Laschet's going to um, put the money into the military, and you know he's a he's a known quantity as a Christian Democrat, so he's the safer option. It's something I'd be keen to hear from you. Yeah, further. it's it, it's it's one that we will continue to report back on, particularly because, as you know, um, German military spending is such a point of contention, or has so not not even a point of contention, just like an irritant to the U.S. Uh, Germany relationship, and it was particularly particularly so under Trump, who was obsessed with getting every country to 
spend more uh, because of their commitment under NATO. And to be fair, you know, every NATO country did say, yes, we will spend 2% on uh, of our GDP on defense. Um, and Germany is, I, I think it's fair to say that Germany has uh, dragged its feet on that. Um, so, so, okay. So if Nord Stream 2 is a potential, you know, irritant, if it's Lesha, then that's a potential irritant if it's Baerbock. Before we move on to the U.S., Gus, I just wanted to ask you about the two parties that we've, you know, brought up but not really um, gone into any depth on, which are Social Democrats and the Free Democrats. First of all, how badly do the Social Democrats feel that their thunder has been stolen by the Green? I mean, I'm being dramatic, but like how how did they end up being such minor characters in this drama? And then the Free Democrats, I mean, if I'm not misremembering, they previously broke up a coalition that would have involved the Greens. Um, so so how is it that now we can expect them to work together? So on the Social Democrats, it's been obviously quite a shift for them because they're used to being the main left of centre party in Germany. Um, you know, along with the CDU, CSU, they were one of the two dominant parties of, of, of most of the post-war era, era in West Germany. Um, and they're going to struggle in this election. And they've got They've got a credible chancellor candidate in Olaf Scholz, who's Merkel's vice chancellor and the finance minister, previously mayor of Hamburg. But he really is dry as dust and in many ways um, is actually the nearest thing there is to a Merkel 2.0, very moderate, very unideological. And perhaps perhaps if voters decide they don't like Laschet, but they're not willing to take a gamble on Baerbock, he can somehow come through the middle. But I wouldn't put money on it. Um, it's difficult for them. They've been Merkel's junior partners in government for twelve, almost 12 of her almost 16 years. That's never a very thankful position um, for a party to be in. And also there are structural reasons why they're struggling that also apply to other social democratic parties around Europe. You know, the old blue collar working class base is fragmenting. There's more cultural politics out there, which is not a language that social democrats can necessarily easily talk and so for a mixture of circumstances, yeah, they're, they're struggling to, 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 to kind of continue styling themselves as one of the, the leading parties. And then on the Free Democrats, I mean, they're going to be, play an interesting role in this because it's, it is possible that after the election, the, the, arithmetically, you could do a government with the Greens, the Social Democrats and the Free Democrats. So a sort of social liberal green government or a government led by the, the Christian Democrats, so Laschet, with the Greens and the Liberals, or the Greens and the Free Democrats. And actually that, that latter formulation is one is one that Merkel tried to pull off after the last election. Um, and everyone expected that the Greens would be the problem there because they'd never governed with the, with the Christian Democrats before. But it was actually the Free Democrats who pulled out. Um, and it was basically a gamble by their leader, Christian Lindner, who's a sort of, he's basically a sort of yuppie type character who's moved the party a bit to the right. They used to be a traditional centrist liberal party. And I think he thought that by, by, by sort of storming out of the talks, he'd sort of get credit for um, you know, standing up for his principles and standing up to Merkel and so forth. And in fact, it did very badly. His party's fallen in the polls, although it's recovered a bit recently. Um, but they're, they're a peculiar party because they are, you know, they were traditionally, you know, they governed with the Social Democrats, um, for example, under Helmut Schmidt in Germany. They were very much of the centre. But um, under Lindner, they've, you know, they, they criticised Merkel on refugees, um, they've um, positioned themselves to the right of the Christian Democrats on some environmental subjects, which would be an issue if they tried to do a government with the Greens. Um, and so, 
um, you know, they're hard to place, but it might be if the numbers are there for both of those two three-party coalitions that I just mentioned, that they actually have the choice whether they want to go under the Greens or go under the, the CDU. And we think that they've learned from a from Christian's episode. Yes, I think so. I think I think that actually the legacy of Lindner storming out of the talks in 2017 is that they're more likely now to be open to going into government, even in a coalition that is a, a kind of an awkward fit with their own politics, namely one led by the Greens. Because I think Lindner now has to get his party into government after he he sort of threw that chance away. I think if he doesn't I think if he doesn't get into government at this election, he's probably done for as party leader. Um, and and I, and I just wonder if actually he, he might, you know, his style is quite oppositional, quite confrontational, particularly for German politics. And actually, he might be quite comfortable in a government where he can kind of mouth off against Chancellor Baerbock all the time and sort mm. of, you know, extract concessions and, and um, you know, profile himself as a sort of voice of opposition within the government, it might actually work for him. So I think that's a reason to think that maybe if the numbers are there, Baerbock will be able to pull off a, a, a sort of a, a government with both the Social Democrats and, and, and the Free Democrats. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. On that note, we move to a section that we like to call You Ask Us. Very good. So we have a question this week. It's a great question from Jake Garlick. The question is, if the Greens were to end up in charge in Germany after the next election, 
what are the chances of a green domino effect, particularly in France? So the backstory to this is that our colleague Guido Falk has written about um, how there's no there's no Brexit domino effect in Europe. Like, it will not surprise, <laughs> I think listeners to this podcast will be sympathetic to this, that, that other countries in Europe did not watch Brexit and say, um, yes, <laughs> I would like some of that. Um, but this question is asking if, you know, while we're speaking about European domino effects, if it's greens in Germany, will there be greens in France? So Jeremy, uh, take it away. I think I think it's a really smart question because it's just as valid if it's just as valid to ask this about the greens as it is to ask it of the the nativist right. Um, and you know, when, for example, around the time of Brexit, when party when politicians like Marine Le Pen or Matteo Salvini or in Germany the AFD these sort of hard right parties were sort of suddenly doing better in the polls. There was this, there was a lot of commentary about this kind of the, the far right wave in Europe or the nationalist wave or the domino effect. And I think it's just as valid to ask that about the Greens now because um, they are doing well in Germany, but the Greens around Europe have been gaining ground in recent years. They gained um, support overall in the European elections in 2019. So their, their, their share of the um, of seats in the European Parliament increased. Um, they've been doing very well in France, as, as um, Jake mentions, they've, they did very well in recent uh, regional and municipal elections. They run a number of France's largest cities now, albeit not, not yet Paris. Um, and, and green parties elsewhere have been doing have been doing well. I mean, they've been they've been a significant part of Dutch politics in recent years. They're in government in um, Finland, in Austria. They they even had one head of government in Iceland recently. So so they they have been gaining support. But and so I suppose the, the success of the Greens in Germany, I think, is is built on similar foundations as in other countries, which is to say that um, environmental subjects have been rising up the agenda in Germany as in other European countries. The sort of the, the sort the sorts of voters who often vote green that is to say um, often urban educated working in white collar information based jobs or in green industries uh, often um, ethnically diverse or, or kind of you know with with migrant backgrounds that th- those groups within populations are growing as a proportion of the total and that's that's good for greens because it means they have a bigger pool of well-inclined voters to, to fish in, in Germany as in elsewhere. So in some ways, they are just part of that larger story. But I think Jake also is right to suggest that, or to, to ask whether the Greens taking the chance in Germany would actually then feed back into that broader pattern. And I think I think, I think it would. I think, um, you know, in a lot of countries, Greens have come from the political fringes as they did in Germany, you know, they emerged in most in most Western European countries from the 1968 student protests. They were seen as sort of beardy hippies for quite a period of time, not to, not to put too fine a point on it. Um, and and I think now what a lot of them are doing is trying to kind of reconcile that that old radicalism with a sense that they are mature enough to hold power. And I think for the Greens to come to power, not just in a large European country, but in Germany of all countries, you know, the the, the kind of the most fiscally solid. Um, sort of dependable and in some respects quite a small c conservative country then I think the question will be asked well if they can come to power in Germany then why not elsewhere so I think I think whether or not you could call it a domino effect I don't know but I think it would give them new momentum to Greens for example in France going into France's presidential election next year. Thank you Jake for sending in your question and if you too would like to be lauded for your wonderful question um, there's actually been a change so you ask us used to be the Google forum and now we've moved it to email. So if you have a question, um, you can email it to podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk. 
If you leave your name, we will shout you out as we did, Jake. But if you don't sign it, we'll just leave it anonymous and you don't have to worry about it. Um, But please do keep those questions coming. Let's look ahead to the next week in world affairs. What will you be paying attention to, Emily? Well, so last night there was this actually quite horrible news out of uh, Jerusalem where there was a march by far-right Jewish activists. The the videos that came out, you could hear Arab children crying out in fear. Over 100 Palestinians were wounded, 22 were hospitalized, at least 50 were arrested, and that includes both far-right extremists and Palestinians. And one story that I will be watching is, you know, whether this violence continues and also the extent to which these far-right extremist Jewish supremacists are emboldened in Jerusalem and in Israel. Do we do we do we know if that has anything to do with the recent election or the political scene in Israel at the moment? I mean, I think I, I think it's fair to say that um, if one looks at the timing, the rise of the far right <laughs> um, in Israeli politics, that yes, there is a that there that there is a connection. So I, I mean, I don't want to say like yes, we can draw a straight line between point A and point B, but many were speculating on social media yesterday that yes, this is this has to do with what's considered acceptable. That the politics of the street are made possible by electoral politics. And what is your moment of the week? Well, I will be paying attention to. In some ways, it's a story from this past week, but I fear that it will also be a big one and perhaps even a bigger one next week. And that's the situation with COVID nineteen in India. I mean, as we're recording this on Friday, um, the last 24 hours, India's recorded 332,000 infections in 24 hours, which is the most in any single day in any country at any point in the pandemic. Um, And that's up on a previous record that India set yesterday, 314,000. And so the direction things are going is definitely not positive there. Um, The health system is straining and in parts of the country, um, oxygen supplies are running short or even running out. Um, you know, it was it did look for a moment like India had been spared a severe second wave um, of the pandemic, but now it's it's experiencing some of the worst numbers um, anywhere in the world. So I think it's a very very concerning picture. Um, you know, obviously, India is not a wealthy country measured by per capita um, income. It's difficult for a lot of people there to to isolate. Um, there are there is a limited social safety net for those um, who are put out of work, and so um, the picture there is grim and could yet get grimmer. So I think I'm going to be paying close attention to that. And um, as things stand, I understand that our colleague um, Ido is going to be writing about that in his um, preview of the week ahead on Monday. So um, for an update on on that and a look ahead to what could happen over the, the next week, also do um, make sure you subscribe to the World Review newsletter um, to read more on that on, on Monday morning. With that, all that remains for me is to thank Jeremy for uh, for that <laughs> tour through the current state of German politics. Thanks, Jeremy. Uh, pleasure. And I'll, I'll put the links to to um, my profile of Annalena Baerbock and, and a couple of other pieces about this on the, the, the webpage for the podcast, newsstatesman.com slash world hyphen review hyphen podcast. It will <laughs> stun listeners that we will have more ger- German politics in the weeks ahead. Um, so please, if you're interested in that, or just if you like this podcast, like, subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends, Uh, your enemies, your cousins, your aunts, about us. And just one final plug uh, in this week's episode. Emily and I will be appearing in a special live episode of New Statesman World Review at the Cambridge Literary Festival, which, uh, of course, is taking place uh, online this time around on Saturday. And you can still buy tickets for that at cambridgeliteraryfestival.com. If you scroll through the events, you'll find us on, on, on Sunday. And we're going to be talking through our predictions for 2021. Um, some listeners may remember we made a series of predictions at the start of the year, foolhardy as we are. 
And we're going to be checking in on how those are performing, which ones are turning out to be right and which ones are very much not. And we'll also take any questions you want to throw at us. So see it as a a catch-up session on on the predictions, but also a kind of big live You Ask Us spectacular. So do consider booking a ticket for that and joining us there on Saturday. It's at 2 p.m. UK time. So it's also at a relatively civilized time of day if you're in the US. So so do take a look at that. CambridgeLiteraryFestival.com. Our producer has been Chris Stone. Thank you so much for listening and until next time. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.